Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one that is marked at Matthew 5. As we continue our series through that most famous of sermons, the one delivered by the Lord Jesus, that we call the Sermon on the Mount, and you see on the screen that the title of the entire series is Transformed Lives, because in this sermon, Jesus describes what the transformed life of a follower of his is to look like. And today we consider the fifth verse of Matthew chapter 5, the third of eight Beatitudes, blessings that Jesus pronounced. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I once heard a comedian say that he was called a wimp all of his life. He said that really bothered him until he showed up at church one day and he heard that the meek will inherit the earth. He thought to himself, I'm going to inherit the earth because when the meek inherit it, we wimps are going to take it from them because a meek can, a wimp can take a meek any day, he says. I didn't say he was a particularly funny comedian, but that's, that's what he said. But what this man said reveals the thinking of most people when they think about this subject of meekness. Most of us, probably most of you, think of meek as weak. But when the Bible speaks of the meek and meekness, it often applies it to people who were strong and even forceful leaders. For example, one such to whom this title of humility and meekness is applied was none other than Moses. And the Bible says Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, contrary to our notions of meekness as being weak and retiring, that is, someone who's a sort of wallflower that watches life passively go by, him or her, Moses was a man of action and of passion and even sometimes of fierce anger. You may recall the story of Moses ascending Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord, and there he was given the Ten Commandments. And after nearly six weeks, he returned with two stone tablets of the law in his hands, but he found the people sinning in their worship. And here is what the Bible tells us. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Jesus, God come as man, said of himself, I, Jesus, am gentle and humble in heart. And yet, like Moses, Jesus was not passive when righteously indignant. The Bible tells us that story of Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple. And it says this, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, in both of these examples, we see what meekness is according to the Bible. Both Moses and Jesus were powerful men, but they used their power in the interest of God, not of themselves. They reserved the strength they had for defending God's interests, not their own. Their expressions of anger were not because of something that had been done to them. In fact, their careers were full of injustices directed at them. 
But Moses, the Bible tells us, turned to the Lord on behalf of the very people who had turned on him. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. These were men who had power, but they possessed that power with restraint. They reserved it for the benefit of others and the vindication of God, defending his reputation, not their own. And God honors the ability and willingness to take the kind of action, even if that kind of action requires anger toward a wrong that's been committed toward God. And so the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, a passage like that tells us that it's possible to be angry and not sin, and that's precisely what Moses and Jesus demonstrated, godly anger. Now, of course, there is such a thing as godless anger. Godless anger destroys. But godly anger is designed to build up. The book of Proverbs gives us the contrast between the two, a kind of of out-of-control, ungodly anger that is based upon selfish ends and then a controlled anger that vindicates God's interests. Proverbs 25 says this, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Useless, really, are walls that are broken down and useless and even harmful as are those broken down walls because they allow harm to come into the city is this one who lacks self-control. But Proverbs 16, in contradiction to this power out of control, says this, better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. That is power in control. And that is what biblical meekness is. And that's why I say at the top of your outline, if you don't have that out already, I encourage you to pull that out of the program that you received on the way in. And you see at the top, we have a take-home truth. And it's this. Christian meekness is power under control. Christian meekness is power under control. And we're going to see... From our explanation of Matthew 5, 5, that very thing today. The word that's translated meekness was used in a number of ways in biblical times. It was a word that was used for medicine that would bring healing. It was used to describe a refreshing breeze on a hot day. It was used to describe a colt, an animal, a whore, a young colt that had been broken. Now please notice this. Each of these, the medicine, The wind, large animals like horses, each of them had power. But that power can be used for good or ill, to harm or to heal, to destroy or to develop. One commentator says that medicine has power to work in the body to calm nerves, to kill germs, strengthen organs, and promote healing. Certainly the wind has power. The cost of Hurricane Katrina's damage was well over $100 billion, with a B, dollars. An estimated 300,000 homes were destroyed or otherwise made uninhabitable. At least 118 million cubic yards of debris and devastation was left behind. Now that is power. If you've ever watched a cowboy on a bunking bronco, you know that a horse is a powerful animal. 
But these three, the medicine, the wind, and the horse, must keep power under control. Otherwise, they do damage. The proper dose of medicine promotes healing. An overdose can kill. A summer breeze is a wonderful thing. A hurricane only destroys. A broken horse can give both work and pleasure to its owner. All of these have power, and that power is under control. When it is under control is what the Bible calls meekness. Now the question for us then is this. Where does this character quality derive? How do you and I become people of self-control who instead of using our physical power to throw our weight around to get what we want, instead of using our relational power to manipulate to get what we want, instead of using our verbal power to assault with our words in order to get what we want, instead of using our positional power as boss or parent or pastor to make demands for our benefit, or our monetary power to give and withhold based on what it's buying me, how do we become people of meek, Christ-like, self-control that uses its power for the benefit of others? How do we become examples of power under control that is biblical meekness? Friends, it begins with how we view ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect toward others. John Stott said, this approach makes a person gentle and humble and sensitive and patient in his dealings with others. To put it another way, a meek person is someone who has an accurate view of his or herself and that affects how they treat others and everything else for that matter. And Jesus says, blessed are these people, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I say in your outline then this, if we're to become these people of, of meekness, power under control, then we're going to need an accurate view of ourselves, an accurate self-image. And that accurate self-image, I say in your outline, results in humility. An accurate self-image results in humility. Now here's why I say that. You have verse number five, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But that's in verse five, the third of these eight blessings that Jesus gives at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The first of those we saw a few weeks ago in verse three. In verse three it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then a few weeks ago we saw in verse number four, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it's in that context now and in that sequence that Jesus says, blessed are the meek. What's the relationship with these? The foundational attitude given in that first blessing in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. That foundational attitude results necessarily in an action that flows from it in verse 4. Those who see themselves as poor in spirit, having nothing to offer God because of our own sinfulness before Him, necessarily then in turn in verse 4 mourn because of that sin. 
the attitude of verse 3 leads to the action of verse 4. And that in turn leads to another attitude, an attitude of humility. Humility toward others. Humility certainly toward, toward God. And in turn, that is going to lead to an action that we will see next week in verse 6. Hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that we know we do not have. An accurate self-image results then in this humility. The person who sees himself as poor in spirit will act, react internally by mourning and will react externally in meekness toward others. Now hear this, friends. The Christian life is impossible apart from this foundational, humble view of ourselves. And it is amazing how many Christian people say, yes, I believe the good news of the gospel, which begins with being poor in spirit. And yet we do not have this kind of humility. We will see some ways toward the end of our message that we can diagnose whether we have it or not. Don't be so sure that you do. John Piper says he was once asked by a college student, isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? He says, my answer was very simple. I said, yes, period. But he goes on to ask, why is the thought that Christianity is a crutch considered to be a valid criticism of Christianity? People don't usually look at a crutch and say, that's bad, it's just a crutch. People don't in general think of crutches as bad things. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it's Christianity? I think the answer that most critics would give is this. If Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. But we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. And so it's offensive to our self-sufficiency to label Christianity as a crutch. But Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever come to get what Jesus has to give are sick people. People who know that they are spiritually and morally and often physically crippled. Everybody has a creed that is a belief system, a statement of belief, even if they haven't articulated it. They own it. They have it in their conscience. All people believe in something, and they shape their lives around what they believe. Even agnostics believe very strongly that you ought not to believe anything very strongly, which is why it's so hard to be a consistent agnostic. We all have a creed that we live by, whether we can articulate that creed or not. And what is the creed that's behind this conviction that if Christianity is a crutch, then it's undesirable and unworthy of our acceptance? The answer is this. The creed behind that criticism of Christianity is this. It's the confident, confidence that we are not cripples and that real joy and fulfillment in life are to be found in the pursuit of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-determination and self-esteem. And so any Messiah who comes along and proposes to replace self-reliance with childlike God-reliance and self-confidence with submissive God-confidence and self-determination with sovereign grace and self-esteem with magnificent mercy for the unworthy, that Messiah is going to be a threat to the religion that so many of us have of self-admiration. That religion has dominated the world ever since Adam and Eve fell in love with the image of their own independent potential when they saw themselves 
reflected back in the eye of the serpent. You will not die. You will be like God. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote one of the more famous essays in American history. The title of that essay was Self-Reliance. He wrote that in the 19th century. And it captured the spirit of his age and it captures the spirit of our age as well. And in it he said, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Discontent is the want of self-reliance. It is the infirmity of will. The real infirmity of the world, according to Emerson, is lack of self-reliance. And so Piper goes on to ask this question. What's the biblical solution? When a person is paralyzed by a sense of guilt or unworthiness or uselessness, on the one hand we have self-reliance that is the dominant religion, even if unspoken, of most people. I can make it on my own. I don't need God. But then what about those of us who take seriously Jesus' admonition and are indeed broken. What is the biblical solution when a person is paralyzed by the sense of guilt and unworthiness and uselessness? He says, I believe with all my heart the solution is not self-esteem. God did not say to Moses, stop putting yourself down. (laughs) You are somebody. You remember when God called Moses and Moses was giving all the reasons that he couldn't carry out the mission that God had given, uh, including that I'm not eloquent with words. God didn't say, stop saying that. You are somebody. You are eloquent. That's not the biblical way. What God said was, stop looking at your own unworthiness and uselessness and look at me. I made your mouth and I will be with you. I will help you. I will teach you what to say. Look to me and live. The biblical answer to the paralysis of low self-esteem is not high self-esteem. It's dependence on the grace of God. And you can test whether you believe this by whether you can gladly repeat the words of Isaiah 41:13. Fear not, God says, you worm Jacob. I will help you, says the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. In other words, God's way of freeing and mobilizing people who see themselves as worms is not to tell them they're beautiful butterflies but rather to say, I will help you. I am your Redeemer. Go to Egypt now, and I will be with you. An accurate self-image results in humility. Here's the second thing it results in in your outline. Results in service. An accurate self-image results in service. I said earlier that meekness is not weakness, and it's also not a personality trait. That is, you might see someone who is just nice. They're just somebody who gets along with everybody. Never has a crossword for anyone. That's just their personality type. They may or may not be meek. So one commentator says, the meek personality suffers indignities without complaint, always aims to please, and never asserts itself. But he says, the mark of meekness is not the absence of assertiveness. It is the absence of self-assertion. It's not the absence of being assertive. It's the absence of being self-assertive. That is meekness. For those of us who are in authority, it is what one preacher called a stewardship of power. That is, 
That position now, that power position that one is in is to be used for the one who gave it and, the, and for those that the one who gave it has given them to lead. And so that is the most meek person will be the one who uses what he has been given for the benefit of others. D.A. Carson said, Meekness is a controlled desire to see the other's interests advance ahead of one's own. So you can be in a position of authority. You can be in a position of power. But if you're a meek person, you want to use that power in service for others. We see an example of this in the life of Abraham and his nephew Lot. You all remember the story from Genesis chapter 13 as they were, as they were looking at all the land that, that God had given. A dispute arose over the cattle and the acreage and which would belong to Lot and which would belong to Abraham. And Abraham was deferential to his nephew Lot. Now, he was in a position of control. He could have said, you're my nephew. I'm your uncle. Listen to me. This is the way it's going to be. But here's what he said. Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. He gave Lot the opportunity to make the choice in the interest of serving, in the interest of peace, because this man, Abraham, had this quality, meekness. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, each of us, honor one another above yourselves. Philippians chapter 2, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Throughout the Bible, we see examples of of powerful people who were in positions where they could have crushed those under them, who because of this power under control, this quality of meekness, this humility, used it for the benefit of those under their charge. You remember the story of Joseph and Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery in Egypt, leaving him for dead. They thought surely he had died. And through a confluence of God-ordained circumstances, they find themselves at the feet of none other than their brother Joseph many years later, who has risen to power in Egypt and who has the, the power to have them jailed or worse. And yet you remember the mercy that Joseph showed to his brothers. David, King David, had opportunity to kill King Saul on at least two occasions. And in fact, he would have been justified in doing so, but he showed him mercy Shammai was a man who cursed David when David was at a very low point, and David showed mercy to Shammai as well in 2 Samuel 16. An accurate self-image results in humility. It results in deference, submission, service to others. And thirdly in your outline, an accurate self-image results in reward. Matthew 5.5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It results in reward. Now, it says they will inherit the earth. In the future, it will be the meek. It will be those who have this character quality of humility and who have demonstrated it in life. That's another way of saying that they're followers of Jesus. It will be those people who will inherit the earth. But it's not only a possession that they will have in the future, it is something that they have now, at least in their own minds, at least in the minds of those who have this quality of meekness. Right now, they sense as though they have everything. 
The great apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 6. Christians are regarded as having nothing, notice, yet possessing everything. The person who is meek is the person who does not have to grab for it his or herself because in Jesus they've been given all things. And in the here and now, they have the reward of the contentment of believing that in Jesus, I have all I need and more. And in the future, they will inherit the earth. One commentator says this, the reason that in the here and now, these believers with this character quality of meekness can have this attitude of possessing everything now is because his ego is not so inflated that he thinks he must always have more. In Christ, he already possesses all things. And with this eternal perspective in view, he can afford to be meek. Let me, start, let me say that again. With this eternal perspective in view, he can afford to be meek. You see, because he believes that he will inherit the earth, therefore he doesn't have to take it. It belongs to his father and it is in his father's hands and therefore he can be meek because it has been and one day what has been given to him will be consummated. It is not yet, but it will be. And so this commentator goes on to say, one day he will come into the fullness of his inheritance. We will find the beatitude fulfilled most literally. For at that point the meek have inherited the earth. He says 50 billion trillion years into eternity, if I can speak of eternity in terms of time, God's people will still be rejoicing that this beatitude is literally true. In a new heaven and earth, and do you all remember that there will be a new heaven and a new earth? They will be grateful that by grace they learn to be meek during their initial three score years and ten. In humility, in meekness, our trust is not in our ability to take, but in God's willingness to give. Meekness is not practiced, friends, too often in the Christian church, both at the personal level, because we're more concerned about justifying ourselves than edifying one another, and it's not practiced at the corporate level, at the national level, and again, including by Christians, because we're more concerned about successfully organizing rally, rallies and institutions and pressure groups than to extending the kingdom of God. Do you think most people would say, who see Christian people going at it in the political realm, that those are meek people? These are people who are trying to take the kingdom by political force. And Jesus says... My kingdom is not of this world. This is why, friends, years ago, God had to teach me, politics is not the answer. Christ is the answer. And our reward will be the earth, a renewed earth, that belongs to him now, will belong to him then, and will be given to his people in the eschaton when he returns. Now, how do you and I know if we have this Christian meekness? I have a number of ways that we can test ourselves with regard to this listed in your outline. How do you know if you have Christian meekness? We can test ourselves on this by answering a series of questions. One of those is this. How do you react to adversity? How do you react to adversity? 
Now, when I talk about adversity, I am talking about adverse circumstances and also adverse people. So this adversity is people who are a pain and situations who are a pain, and they all fall under this category of adversity. And you need to ask yourself, how do you react when things don't go well? How do you react when people don't go well? And the humble person tends to take both of those in stride. With regard to adverse people, they deal with them and they seek to help them even though they can't think highly of them. Now here's why. Because the meek person doesn't have a particularly high view of himself or herself either. So they try to understand this person who is a pain and what it is they're struggling with rather than making a rash, quick, harsh judgment. If you're someone who is truly meek, you will get angered only when it is God who is dishonored, not you. With regard to adverse circumstances, the humble person does not assume that they deserve better, and so they take the things that God brings in that light. William Carey, the famous missionary to India, was one such person. He did not have high self-esteem. He castigated himself again and again for his sin. When a fire in the year 1812 destroyed dozens of his precious manuscripts, he didn't blame the devil. He said this, how unsearchable are the ways of God. And then he accused himself of too much self-congratulation in his labors. And he said, the Lord has smitten us. He had a right to do so, and we deserve his corrections. When Kerry had outlived four of his comrades in mission, he wrote back to Andrew Fuller, I know not why so fruitless a tree as me is preserved, but the Lord is too wise to err. When he died in 1834, a simple tablet was put on his grave with the words that he requested. And when you hear these words, you should ask yourself, what was William Carey's secret? How could he persevere for 40 years over all the obstacles that he had, suffering from recurrent fever, limping for years from an injury that he suffered in 1817, and putting the, yet he put the entire Bible into six languages and parts of it into 29 others. What was the secret of this man's usefulness and productivity for the kingdom of God? The tablet on his grave reads this, William Carey, born August 17, 1761, died June 9, 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. The secret of William Carey's success was not self-esteem. He was poor in spirit to the very end of his life, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, he calls himself, knowing very well his sin and his failures because he meets the criteria in verse 3 of the Beatitudes. He was poor in spirit. But the secret of his life is in the last line of that epitaph, On thy kind arms I fall. This was his secret in dying, and it was his secret in living. He cast himself poor and helpless on the kind arms of God because he knew the promise of Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When Jesus said that in Matthew 5, he was quoting a psalm in the first part of your Bible. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 and verse 11 says this. The meek will inherit the land. That same psalm, Psalm 37, 
talks about the actions and reactions of people who are not meek. It's the meek who will inherit the land. Jesus then quotes that as this third beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount. But in Psalm 37, it talks about people who don't have this, this meekness. And what do they do? Well, here's what Psalm 37 says. Do not fret because of evil men. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. The psalmist is saying that the opposite of this meekness that takes from the hand of God the circumstances that God chooses to give, the opposite of that is fretting, worrying. How do you know if you have meekness? Well, here's one way you'll know that you do not. If you are a frequent and regular worrier. Worriers are control freaks. You say, what does worrying have to do with being a control freak? Well, it's this. They worry when they can't control. And they worry a lot because <laughs> there are so many things you can't control. But friends, what is it that makes us assume that we can or should control? And the answer to that is a lack of humility, a lack of meekness. It is, to put it another way, the presence of pride. You show me a constant worrier and I will show you a control freak whose root sin is self-reliance. The antidote, the spiritual antidote to fret and worry is reliance on our God. So how do you react to adversity? Here's a second question. How do you respond to the word of God? James chapter 1 says this, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now notice, you're only going to accept the word and the admonitions and teachings of the word if you have this humility. You humbly accept the word. The assumption of the person who comes to the word then with this kind of attitude is, I need this. But you'll only make that assumption if you're humble. I'm absolutely amazed at how many people, professing Christian people, take a bend there, done that approach to God's word. I already know all this. Yikes. I was counseling a guy about a year ago, not someone in our church, and I was going through some biblical concepts with him, and he said to me, quote, I know all of this. That arrogant attitude is what had gotten that man in his situation and what will keep him there if he is not humbled. Have you ever noticed that the people who are most wrapped in attention when the Word of God is being taught or preached are the people who, from our standpoint at least, need it the very least? Now, from their standpoint, from their humble perspective of themselves, they see themselves as needing it most. But in my interactions with people, the people who week in and week out are listening and attentively listening and seeking to apply what they hear to themselves are the people who actually, from my flawed human perspective, could take a couple weeks off. 
but it's the very people who need it most who find an excuse, any excuse, whatever excuse, to be out from under the sound of the teaching of the Word of God. The people who need it the most are the people who find a reason to go someplace else in the building, any place else in the building, but in here, right now, hearing the Word of God. dangerous position to be in because it exemplifies the opposite of the meekness that the Bible speaks of. A humility that says I receive the word of God because I need the word of God. A third diagnostic question. How do you restore people who sin? The Bible tells us to do that. Galatians chapter 6, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. So in this situation, you have a brother or sister who has sinned. They're caught in a sin. And you're coming to them about that, hopefully in obedience to God's word, rather than in arrogance to show that you have something over them. But this potentially puts you in a position of power over that individual. And your meekness or lack thereof is going to show in how you handle that situation. How do you treat someone who you should be seeking to restore? Gently, as the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, or with a, I gotcha, I told you so. I'm better than you. I'm holier than thou. Let me ask a corollary to this question. It's not in your notes. But how do you react when you're being restored from sin? So it's not just how do you act toward those who have sinned, how do you react when you're confronted with your sin? What is your response when a brother or sister approaches you about your own inconsistent Christian life? Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that, you know, it's relatively easy for us to be honest with ourselves before God and acknowledge ourselves as sinners in His sight. You know what he's saying? He's saying that we can all say and confess together and at the end of the prayer where I say, Lord, we are sinners and we're idolaters and all that and all of God's people said and everybody says amen. Yep, we're all sinners. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's like God. When compared to God, I'm not God. I admit that. What a humble person I am to admit I'm not God. And so he's saying it's relatively easy for us to do that. But he goes on to say, how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things like that about me? <laughs> you see, friends, here's the deal. We're sinners in theory, we think, but not in reality. In theory, I'm a sinner. But in reality, don't confront me with my sin. Because if you confront me with my sin, be ready, duck. Because I really don't think I'm a sinner. I mean, in the abstract, I'm not God and nobody's perfect and everybody sins and all the junk we say. But in this moment, we're talking about you here and now and your sin. And God has brought a brother or sister to confront you with that. And whether or not you are meek will be seen in your reaction. Fourth question. Diagnostic question. How do you relate in God's church? 
How do you relate in God's church? Ephesians 4 admonishes all of those in Christ's church to this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Dear friend, ask yourself, am I actively pursuing peace with God's people? In any healthy church, this is going to sound strange, but stay with me, in any healthy church, there are invariably going to be some people who are working at odds with the unity of God's church. Now, why do I say that's true of a healthy church? Friends, don't, you, you do get this, right? A healthy church does not mean the absence of sinful people, Right? And if sinful people do not humble themselves on a regular basis, those sinful people can cause great harm to God's church. That's why the Bible warns of it over and over and over again. And I'm asking some of you sitting here, are you actively pursuing the unity of God's church? And if the answer to that is no, or I don't know, or I'm not sure, then it's because of a lack of humility because it requires being completely humble and gentle, says Ephesians 4, in order for us to do this. A fifth diagnostic question. How do you reconcile with those in disagreement? A meek person is willing to defer, is willing to submit, is willing to make their case without quarreling. 2 Timothy 2 says this, The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. The meek person in this situation, who has a disagreement, now hear this carefully, is a person who is content to be heard, even if not heeded. It's a person who is content to be heard even if their position is not heeded. Having been heard, they will shut up about it. Is that a little too straight? Having been heard, and having been heard clearly, and having been heard respectfully, if the church does not follow their recommendation, The meek person, the humble person, will be done with that. The prideful person will continue on a vendetta because you have committed the worst sin that could possibly be committed in their eyes. You've not followed my advice. How do you reconcile with those in disagreement? And sixthly and lastly, how do you reason with unbelievers? Sometimes in our interactions with those who are yet to come to faith in Christ, pre-believers, I like to say, in confidence, it's a matter of time. But sometimes in our interaction with pre-believers, we reason with them by belittling them. But the Bible tells us in one of the most famous passages of our interactions in instructing us in how to interact, it tells us just the opposite of that. First Peter 3 says, In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness 
and respect. The Christian person who has humility, who has this meekness, will be a person who will approach not only brothers and sisters, but those outside the family of faith with gentleness and respect because they understand how poor in spirit they are. They have no business looking down or belittling anyone else. Now, friends, that's what Christian meekness is. Christian meekness is power under control. I want to urge you to take those diagnostic questions and ask them of yourself this afternoon, this week. And let me take it one step further. I would urge you to give those diagnostic questions to some people in your circle of influence. Because you see, if you're not meek, then you pass all of these. You think you pass all of them. Yep, yep, I'm good, I'm good, got it. And you may think you have it, especially because you're not meek enough to see otherwise. You're not humble enough to see yourself as you truly are. So you need someone or someones in your circle who can see you and can speak truthfully to you and say, tell me about this. Do I humbly receive the word of God? When we disagree, how do I react? When there are adverse circumstances, do I demonstrate trust in God or a desire to have control? Go through that list with someone in your circle of influence. You want to grow in Jesus? You want to be like Jesus, who is gentle, lowly of heart? The meek will inherit the earth. And this is a diagnostic way for you to see where you are and by God's grace to get where you need to be. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this sacred time to be able to consider these profound words of the Lord Jesus, blessed are the meek, completely opposite the world's approach, completely opposite the approach that we would take apart from you. It is only a supernatural change in our hearts and in our minds that would cause us to see gentleness as the way to greatness. And yet, Lord, you upset everything in man's economy. And followers of Jesus are radically different than the world. So help us to not be surprised that it's the meek who will inherit the earth. And in the here and now, until the consummation of all things and the fullness of our reward, help us to be people who demonstrate this Christ-like character in our interactions with one another, in our reactions to the circumstances that you bring into our lives. Oh, Lord, grant us a humility that we do not have. None of us has, naturally. In our sin, we are arrogant and insolent and disobedient. Lord, we need your spirit to make us what we are not by nature. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have given us your spirit. And the fruit of the spirit is being borne out in our lives. And among those fruits is self-control. Lord, help us to be people who use the power that you have given us. As believers, as parents, as employees as church members, as church leaders, in every sphere that you place us, help us to be people who use the power that you have given. After all, it has come, come from you. Help us to use the power that you have given for the ends toward which you have given it. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.